you'll open your Bibles to 1 Samuel. Please open your Bibles to 1 Samuel. We're looking, beginning, you know, our first text we'll read will be from there. It is good to be with you tonight. It's been a good day for us to be together, to encourage one another, and to glorify God. God, Almighty God, who's eternally enthroned in heaven, has foreordained or did foreordain that his son would be crowned. Crowned king, reigning eternally on a throne at his right hand. We recently studied about God predestining Jesus Christ to be king and how he would be forevermore the one to uphold peace and execute righteousness. He would be the great light who would shepherd the people of God and in turn he would totally transform them. He also is the one who will judge all nations and all men. Jesus is that Christ. He is that anointed one of God. And so when God chose David to replace King Saul, it was so much more than just filling an office. It was so much more than just filling a position of a power. It was a foreshadowing. It was insight into the kind of heart God's anointed one would possess. And so we begin here in 1 Samuel... Focusing on the idea how God I am examines hearts. And he examines the hearts of men. And the heart of the matter does matter. And you think about it. God, the creator of the universe, the creator of life itself, is the one who created our bodies as well as our souls. And so God is fully aware. He is fully aware of how the heart of every man, how our hearts of every one of us affects our choices, it affects our actions, and it affects our circumstances. And so we begin considering, for example, Israel's first earthly king, who is Saul. And when you begin the study of the kings here in the book of 1 Samuel, we know that Saul began his reign on a good note. And he seems to be one who had a good heart. But as time passes, as you study the book of 1 Samuel, we realize the heart of Saul changed. The heart of Saul exalted himself in ways which became his downfall. For example, in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 2, it talks about you know, how impressive Samuel, excuse me, Saul was. And it says there in the second verse of the ninth chapter. You know, that he was a choice man, he was a handsome man, and he was so handsome. Now, consider this, guys. Consider this. There is not a single other man as handsome, more handsome than Saul. He was one impressive man. 
He was the most handsome guy in Israel. And besides being so handsome, he says, and he was taller than anybody. So you've got this really good-looking hunk who is taller than everybody, and God says, I want him to be king. And so God chooses Saul to be God. You know, to be his king. He is a God-ordained king. And you see that as you read here in chapter 9 and 10 as the story unfolds. And as it begins, Saul appears to be at least, appears to be someone who was fairly humble. In chapter 9, verse 21, when he's having this conversation with Samuel, and one of the replies Saul makes is, Am I not a Benjamite? Of the smallest of the tribes of Israel in the family, the least of all the families of the tribe of Israel. Why didn't you speak to me in this way? Saul did not see himself as some great individual. He saw himself as, later on, for example, in chapter 15, he talked about how he saw himself as little among the Israelites. But after becoming king, and after being a king for a while, that changed. And you turn your pages over to the 15th chapter of 1 Samuel, please. Let's look at just a couple of verses in this, in this chapter. So you kind of glance there, beginning in verse 10. As we see how after becoming king and being king for a while, Saul turned. He turned from the Lord, and even to the point that it says he set up a monument for himself. His heart's changing. And it's not the kind of heart that pleased God. And so it says, the Lord said to Samuel, I regret that I made Saul king. What a sad statement that must have been for God to say. Someone who had such potential. And then God has said, I regret that I've made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and crying, cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and he was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and then turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. And so Samuel continues traveling, and he comes to Saul in verse, in verse 13, and Saul... Uh, approaches Samuel and says, Blessed are you of the Lord. I've carried out the command of the Lord. And Samuel's response, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears, the lowing of the ox, which I hear? And of course, he responds, Well, they brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest we have utterly destroyed. And so you begin reading that account, and here's a man who appears to be quite humble in the beginning, appears to be a, a good-hearted kind of guy, and has such potential to be a good king. But it, a heart that does not obey God's commandments as he has commanded is no longer a humble heart, is it? And like so many other people in the world then and now, Saul then attempts to justify his disobedience. He starts out by saying, I've done everything. And then he comes back and explains down in verse 19, you know, when Samuel says, well, why then did you not obey the Lord? 
But rushed to this boy, why did you do this? And he answers, I did obey the voice of the Lord. He hadn't. But he's trying to justify himself. He says, I, I did obey. It's the people. The people is the one who brought the choice of things. To devote to the Lord. What a sad story it is. God knows the hearts of men, and the heart of men matters to God. There's another king after David named Solomon. King Solomon, what a wise king he was. But King Solomon's heart likewise was drawn away from God. You read that in 1 Kings 11, around verse 4 and verse 6, as it describes that heart. And he's drawn away from God because his heart desired women, it says. He desired women more than he desired Jehovah. So describe that heart, a heart that was not wholly and fully devoted to the Lord. That was Solomon. He has all this wisdom, but he didn't apply it very well, did he? Because his heart turned also. Because it was a heart that was not wholly and fully devoted to the Lord because he put other people above God. Other people took precedence above Jehovah. And so that brings us to the character we want to consider tonight, and that is God chose David. And he chose young David to be King Saul's successor, and he did so because of the heart of David. Through Samuel, God in very clear words, if you kind of glance down in chapter 15 in 1 Samuel, look at verse 28. In very clear words, God told King Saul that the kingdom was being taken away from him. I'm, I'm tearing it away from you, and I'm giving it to a better man. That's a blow. I'm going to give the kingdom that I gave to you, I'm going to give it to somebody else, and I'm going to give it, it's going to be a better man than you. And we're told what made David so much better. Well, in 1 Samuel, earlier in the context of this record, in verse 14, uh, earlier transgression of Saul, it says, The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. God examines hearts. And Saul turned his heart away from God, and Solomon turned his heart away from God, and God chose David because of his heart. And he says, I've appointed him as ruler over his people. As you think about the occasion here in 1 Samuel chapter 16, when Samuel is sent to the house of Jesse, and we're told here in this chapter that God I am looked at the heart of Jesse's son. If you recall in verse 7, you have Eliab has entered the room, and he's the eldest of all the sons of Jesse. And he was impressive, at least to Samuel's eyes, to the point that Samuel, surely this, this one is God's chosen king. And then God says to Samuel, Samuel needs to kind of get, you know, get refocused here. And God tells Samuel, don't look 
at his appearance or at the height of his stature. Now, King Saul is still, you know, this impressive king in appearance. And here's Eliam, who is also impressed. And I'm assuming that Eliam did not stack up to Saul, but he's impressive. And God tells Samuel, don't look at what he looks like. And he tells us why. He said, because I've rejected him. And why did he reject you know, Eliab? He says, for God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Eliab's heart did not stack up, did it? It didn't measure up to the kind of king that God wanted, the kind of king that God needed. And so as you know, David was chosen. David was chosen not because of his looks. His brothers were more impressive in physical appearances. But that doesn't mean David was ugly either. David was a good-looking guy too. Because you look there in chapter 12, when he comes in, here's this ruddy, with beautiful eyes and handsome appearance. You know, there's a reason, you know, the ancient or old artists of Europe depict David as a very handsome guy. Because he was. But that's not why God picked David. Because his eyes were so pretty. It wasn't because he was handsome too. It had nothing to do with God's choice. God picked him because God looked at the heart of David. So what kind of heart did David have? I want to suggest to you, first of all, as we think about the unfolding of the story, this divine story, this divine record that is preserved for us to not only know God's hand in the affairs of men and God's hand in the affairs of his own people, but also to, to know God better. To know God's choosing better. To know, you know God's plan better. Think about chapter 17 now. The story of Goliath. You know that story. Every, you know, every good little Bible student knows the story of Goliath. Your children can tell that story to us. But here is young David presented to us. He has, he has already been anointed by Samuel. He's not king yet. But he has been chosen. God has selected him. God hadn't picked before. He was anointed by Samuel. And so but now it, that has transpired. He's not on the throne yet. And so you've got this incident with Goliath and the Philistines and the army of Israel and Saul. And so, as you know, the father Jesse sends David to go check on the brothers because some of the brothers are in the army. And dad's concerned. He wants to see if they're okay. So he sends David to go check on them. As you turn over in, in, the cha- in the 17th chapter, and you get around you know, 24, 25, when David arrives, and you've got this scene going on with Goliath, you know, you know, shouting out at the, at the army of Israel. And David asks about what's going on and about what will be done and so forth. And Eliab, his oldest brother, hears about all of this, and, his, and Eliab is angry. 
In verse 28, it says, Eliath's anger burned against David. He is upset with his baby brother. He's not very happy with the fact that David is here asking about all of this. And he says, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? Not a very nice thing he's saying about him. And he goes on and he critiques David. And he says, I know your insolence and the wickedness of your heart. For you've come down in order to see the battle. And so Eliab is really upset, and he's criticizing David, and it's probably growing out of, you know, it could be growing out of a number of reasons. And so I suggest you, it may be growing out of his own jealousy. There may be some jealousy going on here. It may be some selfishness. I don't know for sure. But why is he so upset about this? You know, Eliab's heart is not David's heart, is it? And Eliab was not anointed to be the next king because God knew Eliab's heart. And here's a little bit of revelation about the heart of Eliab. Maybe it's his own shame or his own fear. He is in the army of Israel. What's he doing about Goliath? Nothing. Maybe that's playing into it. But you know, Eliab did not know David's heart, did he? He's accusing him of something that is not correct, that is not right. But God knew David's heart. That's why he was chosen king. And I would suggest to you, one of the things that can be brought out in, in, this, in this story is the fact that David had a zealous heart for God. He had a zealous heart for God. And so in this incident, what does David see? What David sees, he sees the greatness of God. That's what David sees. He knows his God. He knows his Jehovah. He knows God I am. And, that, and he, so he, he sees the greatness of God. And so David does not see his own inadequacies. David does not see his own limitations. And so here is God in all his greatness. And he saw Israel's need as an opportunity to glorify his God. David has a zealous heart for God. And so, for example, in verse 32, when he's talking to King Saul now, he's been presented to the king, he said, Let no man's heart fail on account of him. Your servant will go. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. He says, I'm not, I'm not walking away from this fight. I'll go, Saul. Why is that? Because he believed in God, that's why. He didn't see his smallness or his limitation. He saw God. And he was, a, he was passionate about God. For example, in verse 26, when he's asking you know, some of the soldiers, his fellow Israelites, and he says, you know, For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? Well, who is this guy? That's saying this stuff. How dare he be talking that way about you all who are the army of Jehovah? And you drop down, and very similarly, you see him again talking about that when you see there in the 45th verse. And now he's talking to, to, to the Goliath. Says, you come to me with a sword and a spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord, the Lord of hosts. The God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. David was zealous for God. He was, he was passionate about God's name 
being revered properly. And so he is, here's this also a young man who trusted God fully. You know, what he, re, you know, what he reflected on there in the 70th chapter, verse 37, he says, God delivered me from the lion. God delivered me from, from the bear. He'll deliver me from this giant. It's one of the same. To David, he trusted God fully. So he would not leave without upholding, without defending God's cause. And so in verse 46, the day... This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down, remove your head. And he goes on to say that all the earth may know that there is a God. There is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord, see not only the Philistines, but also the Israelites need to know this. That there is the Lord, that the I am does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give it into our hands. So here is David, the zealous heart, and that's the kind of heart that God knew he had. And so God chooses him. He chooses him to be the ruler, the next ruler, because he had a heart, as we're told in chapter 13, verse 13 and 14, a heart that is after God. And interestingly, that is in contrast to the foolish heart that Saul had. Listen again. Samuel says to Saul, You have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. If you had obeyed, if you kept it, God would have established you. But that's not what you did. So your kingdom has been taken away from you. And so verse 4, now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Saul was a heart, a foolish heart that did not keep God's commandment, implying that the next ruler would. Now, would you consider very quickly two different times in David's life when I think you see the humility of David's heart yielding to God's instructions, to God's directions, to God's judgments. The first one is over in 1 Chronicles. So this is the Chronicle account involving David wanting to build the temple. So familiar story. So you think about it, that incident. David has built himself a house, and he's looking at the situation, and he is, he, is, he is a bit concerned that God's house is still just this tent. And he thinks God deserves something so much better, so much grander than just this tent. And you know, from our viewpoint, that's not a bad idea, is it? And so he makes the suggestion, Nathan you know, agrees with him, Nathan the prophet, but that's not what God wanted. And just listen to what God says through Nathan to David in verse 4. And so God's talking to the prophet, and he says, go tell David, my servant. And so David is a servant, even though he's made a suggestion that God doesn't agree with. So David is God's servant, and he says, thus says, though, you go tell David, God says, thus says the Lord, you shall not build a house for me to dwell in. 
Now he goes on to talk a little bit more about that. that you talk about being plain spoken. God was very plain spoken there, wasn't he? You will not do this. And as you read you know, the chronicle account, as, and you harmonize with the other for that matter, but you know, as you read the account of God not allowing David to build the temple, what I want you to think is, think about the heart of David and how he received that. How he accepts God's Instruction. He accepts God's judgment about this, and he's all okay with it. And actually, when you, when you think about it, and you continue reading in the 17th chapter, you see that David was actually honored by what God has to say about all of this. Because God says, you're not going to build me a house, but I am going to build your house. And so David sees what a great honor it has been given to him that he is part of God's plans, of Jehovah's plans, in establishing a descendant's throne forever. He said, and so God says, this is what I'm going to do for you. you can, you're not allowed to do this for me, but I'm going to do this for you. And David is honored to the point that he praises God. And so you think about it. He's, he, he's made this great idea. He's bringing this great idea and God just ditched it. Nope. Bad idea. Instead of leaving and all moping about, oh, poor pitiful me, David accepts that and he listens to what God has to say. He listens why he's made the decision and he praises God. Look in verse 16 of the 17th chapter of 1 Chronicles. He says, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? This is a small thing in your eyes, O God, but you have spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come and regarded me according to the standard of a, a man of high degree, O Lord God. He keeps on just, just praising God after one statement after another. In verse 20, O Lord, there's none like you, there's, you know, nor is there any God besides you according to all we have heard with our ears. He is humbled by this honor. But contrast that to a, to a different story, to a different time in David's life. And you go back to 2 Samuel chapter 12. When Nathan comes to him again, and it's, and it's all not so rosy this time. And you're familiar with the time, the time in David's life and the sins he committed, plural, revolving around Bathsheba. So God sends Nathan to David to confront him about these sins. And one of the things that stands out to me in the 12th chapter of 2 Samuel is this, is that David heard God's rebuke. David heard God's rebuke. All men of faith don't, do they? All men of faith do not always hear God's rebuke. But David did. He heard it. And he humbled himself with a contrite heart. And so just kind of scanning down you know, through this passage of the 12th you know, chapter of 2 Samuel, look there in verse 7. 
you know, when, when Nathan just comes out and says, You are the man, and thus says the Lord God of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. And I'm the one who did this for all of this for you. In verse 9, why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? And it talks about the murdering of Uriah and the taking of Uriah's wife. This is what you did, David. You have sinned. You are the guilty party. But then verse 13, you see the humility and the contriteness and the penitence of a heart that is a heart after God. I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. David was convicted of his sin. Rightfully so. He heard the rebuke and he took it to heart. And he realized he had sinned greatly against Jehovah. And he made no excuses. He didn't offer empty excuses like Saul tried to do. Nor did he blame others either. I have sinned, he said. And after all is said and done, David understood the consequences that came with that sin as well. And that's the case with sin. There's always consequences that come with sin. And David understood that he would have to bear their heavy burdens for the rest of his life. He accepted it. That God is good. God is righteous. God is holy. But as I said in the beginning of my lesson, David is a foreshadowing. The foreshadowing of God's anointed one whose heart would wholly and fully obey his father. And that's Jesus. Jesus is the perfect man after God's own heart. See, not only was Jesus the descendant of prophecy who reigns forever on the throne, as we talked about already, but also Jesus is the ruler whose heart, who has truly, was truly devoted after God's heart. There's nothing about Jesus physically that made him impressive to the world. There's nothing about Jesus physically that distinguishes him as somebody great in the eyes of the world. Now, Isaiah prophesied about that. There's nothing majestic. There's nothing about him that, that attracted men to him because of his appearance, of his stature. And, and you think how that harmonizes somewhat with you know, Nathaniel's response when he hears that the Messiah is supposed to come out of a little town named Nazareth. You know, what good thing it could ever come out of Nazareth? But that's not why God chose Jesus' son to be the Christ, the anointed one after his own heart. And so throughout the ministry of Jesus Christ, what do you see? You see a heart that is devoted fully and wholly to his Father. And his father's will. 
In Luke chapter 2, the story of when he is just a, a boy. And he stays behind in Jerusalem. And his parents think that you know, they may have lost him. And they're hunting them. And it's taken some days to find him. But at that point, he's 12 years old. And Jesus knew what? What did he know? He knew that his purpose was to be focused on his father's affairs. That's where his devotion was. His heart were on things above. And then you turn over some more chapters in your New Testament. You look in John chapter 2, at the the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, when he comes to Jerusalem, and what does he find there at the Passover, at the temple? He finds things in the temple that are not good. And he sees that they're selling oxen and sheep and doves and money changers seated there at their tables in the temple grounds. What does he do? He makes a scourge of cords and drives them out. And he says to them, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. And we're told in verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus had a heart after God. Like unto David, Jesus had a zeal for God that motivated him to take action in a way that treated God as holy. You keep looking throughout the Gospels. For example, in chapter 5 of the Gospel of John, Jesus is teaching, teaching a lot in this chapter about authority and the authority that he possesses because who he is. And we're told in the the 19th verse, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. Here's a heart that's after God's heart. Verse 30, I can do nothing, he says, on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is judged because I do not seek my own will. I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So throughout his ministry, he exemplified that. He proclaimed that. That he was the anointed one whose heart was fully and wholly devoted to his father. Even at the heightened emotional moment in Gethsemane. You think about Matthew's account there in Matthew chapter 26. In that moment in Gethsemane, what, what, what are we told? What, are we, what is shared with us? What's shared with us is the heart of David. I mean, the heart of, of Jesus. Yes, knowing what lies ahead of him and the pain and this cruciation that, that will come with all of that. And so he turns to the only one they could do something about it. Being deeply grieved, deeply distressed. And so he prays. He prays to his father. And he says, to, you know, you know my, my soul is deeply grieved to me. The point of death remain here. Keep watch with me. And he goes off by himself, falls on his face. And he says, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass for me. Yet not as I will. 
but as you will. Even in this moment, Jesus' heart remained true. Unlike David. David had a heart after God, and it was a good heart. A zealous heart, a humble heart, a penitent heart, a faithful heart. But he veered. Jesus did not. Jesus remained true. It would not do so even in the most difficult situations. And so you think in conclusion, in Philippians chapter 2, that familiar text. Once again, think of the idea of God, why he chose David and how David you know, becomes this foreshadowing. David becomes the one through whom God will establish an eternal throne through a descendant of the loins of David. And so you think of what we're told here in Philippians 2 about the heart of our Lord, the heart of our King, the heart of our Savior. And we're told to have the same kind of heart, the same kind of attitude. One, he says, he, although he existed in the form of God and did not, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And what did he do? Verse 7, he emptied himself took the form of a bondservant and, being, and was made in the likeness of men and being found in that appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Think about that. From the very idea of emptying himself in order to become Emmanuel, the heart that is willing to empty himself and take on flesh. From that moment to obeying his father and heeding his father's will, his father's instructions, his father's wishes, to the point of obeying him by dying on a cross, Jesus' heart was devoted fully, wholly to God every step of the way. David possessed a good heart. But it was a heart that did fall short of God's glory. And he was restored, he was reconciled, and he was renewed. But it was a heart that did fall short of God's glory, even as good as he was. But our king, our King Jesus' heart did not. And because Jesus learned obedience, even learned obedience during the times of great temptation, during times of great suffering, because of that, not only is Jesus our King, but Jesus is our Savior as well. And that's why the Spirit directed Peter and the apostles to preach on the day of Pentecost that this same Jesus whom you crucified God has made both Lord and Christ. God made Jesus his anointed one. For he's the true heart after God's heart. And so therefore, if we want to be benefited by the blessings that are found only through Jesus Christ, then we must 
sanctify our hearts in such a way that we make Jesus Lord of our hearts. That's what it takes. We've got to be willing to sanctify the anointed one of God, Jesus Christ, who is Lord in Christ, Savior and King. Sanctify him as Lord of our hearts. Why is that? Because the heart of the matter does matter. That's why. Because it's only that heart that has sanctified Christ as his or hers Lord will obey him. Will submit to the gospel of the anointed one. Which is the power of salvation to all those who truly believe. If we can help you to make your life right with God. We want to encourage you to, do, to make that decision, make the commitment tonight. If you believe Jesus to be the Christ, you believe him to be God's son, but you've not obeyed his gospel, repent of your sins. Turn from that lifestyle. Confess your faith in Jesus Christ as God's son and be baptized. Washing away your sins by the grace of God, the power of truth. And live a life that's sanctified to him. A life, a heart that's devoted to the one who is totally devoted every step of the way. If you are a Christian, and we can assist you, praying with you or for you, to make things right in your life, encourage you as well. Make your wishes known tonight while we stand and sing the song that's been selected.